Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. My guest today is my friend Ivan Canapathy. He's a former Marine fighter pilot and even an instructor at the famous U.S. Navy Strike Fighter Tactics School, otherwise known as Top Gun. And relevant to our discussion today, he also served as a military attache in Taiwan and was former Deputy Senior Director at the National Security Council for Asia in the White House under the Trump and Biden administration. Now he's a Senior Vice President at the Beacon Global Strategies Group. Ivan, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Dimitri. Fantastic. Well, Ivan, you were gracious enough to invite me on a trip to Taiwan a few months ago, which was a fascinating trip. You're absolutely beloved there and have fantastic relationship. We met with the senior leadership of the country, but also had a chance to explore the countryside and, and look at the terrain and the beaches and, and how potential Chinese invasion could unfold. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But the first thing I wanted to ask you is you, we just completed this election in Taiwan, where the current party, the DPP, won the, the presidency but lost the, the legislature to their uh, competitors in the KMT and the third party, the TPP. What does that divided government mean for the future, for the next four years, particularly in terms of U.S.-Taiwan relations and their defense strategy? It's a great question, Dimitri. It's hard to know because Taiwan's sort of political history is still evolving, right? They're, they're a relatively young democracy. The last time we saw this, where you had a divided government, was more than 16 years ago. So the last time the legislature was split and was different than the party in power in the government was the 2004 election that lasted till 2008. Since then, you've had the same party running the government as you had running the legislature. Um, back then, I can tell you things did not turn out great from a U.S.-Taiwan's perspective. But at the same time, and that was for us, the George W. Bush administration, um, we had a lot of differences with what the administration was doing uh, in Taiwan. And they were actually, I think, in the view of a lot of folks, uh, in some ways, destabilizing cross-strait relations. Um, but the legislature at that time was not at all, they were, they were very much not in line with the administration, and looking to be an obstacle. Now, fast forward to today, I think things are a bit different because all three parties actually campaigned, their presidential candidates, on increasing deterrence, increasing defense spending. And so I think for the United States is really to make sure and hold all of them to the fire, hold all their feet to the fire, and uh, and hopefully that the legislature, if they, if they are going to, bicker a little bit on domestic issues that hopefully on external and cross-strait issues that they can come together. Now, as you say, the, all parties campaign on increasing defense spending and even on military training, the DPP, the current party, extended the training regimen from four months to one year for conscription. And even though some of the opposition initially made moves and, and uh, talked about potentially decreasing that back to four months, there seems to be an emergent consensus on that issue. But I want to ask you about the, the military-civilian relationship, because one of the things that was very apparent to me on our visit is that the DPP, while very much focused from a strategic perspective on deterring China, 
you know, it's full of these civilians that don't necessarily have deep bench of national security, military expertise, and the defense ministry, the MND, is full of these KMT generals that want their big programs, their M1 Abrams tanks, their submarines that are built with the very best of the 1960s Dutch technology. And that disconnect worries me quite a bit. How do you think about it? Because it's one thing to say, well, we're going to increase the budget, but you also have to spend it on the right things, right? Yeah. You know, I think about it, uh, I think for us here in the United States, especially folks, you know, in the Washington sort of orbits, it's not that different than what happens here, right? You have, if, if the military services in the United States had their own way, then I think we'd also have, you know, a lot of F-22s and, you know, the most advanced capable ships um, possible. And then, you know, the same thing on the ground side. And so we have a system though, where we do have what's lacking in Taiwan is this other cadre of expertise. And I think that's not just in the government, right? It's all around Washington, whether it's the think tanks, it's the academic expertise. We have a lot of people that have served in the military or worked in the defense establishment um, that are able to sort of provide other voices and other input into that process. Um, and, and, and really the big strategic thought that then drives force development systems acquisitions. In Taiwan, you really lack that and the military establishment, which is overwhelmingly uniforms, right? There really are very few civilians. So it's almost like, you know, the services and that's it. They've been driving force development and military strategy for decades and and building that cadre up, whether it's the KMT or the DPP, will take time. I think it started, um, but having those other voices and external checks and that political influence that's needed uh, over the military, I think it's it's just kind of budding and developing there in Taiwan. And one of the things that's so interesting is, of course, that every general and every military is, is going to want the biggest weapons platform, the most expensive, the one that gives them most prestige. So in some ways, it's not surprising that M1 Abrams tanks that perhaps are not best suited for this very hilly, mountainous terrain full of rivers where you're not going to have these major tank battles that you might see on the battlefields of Ukraine, right? No, that's right. I think I think Taiwan itself, which is predominantly, like you said, mountainous and, and forested, and, and then the other part is where it's flat, it's highly urban. And I don't think either one of those really lends itself to very heavy tracked vehicles. The other thing that was really striking, and you really have to go there and walk the terrain, not just go to Taipei and, and meet with senior officials, but get out of the city, go to the beaches, go to the ports, and get an appreciation for how difficult this operation would be, right? A lot of people, I think, have this simplistic view that this is like Normandy 2.0. You know, this big amphibious uh, invasion fleet is going to cross, land on the beaches, fight for the beaches, and expand from there. And you get there and you, you appreciate that this is not Normandy, right? The beaches are very small, very narrow, very shallow, can be controlled, uh, fire controlled from the, from the hills. And even if you get off the beach, there's nowhere to go. You're up against a mountain, right? So this is not like the, the Normandy terrain that we faced in World War II. And beyond that, there are tunnels, there are rivers. It's just a, an absolute nightmare of a place to invade. And that was perhaps what was most striking to me is 
that with a little bit of effort, this is a natural fortress that is almost impossible to take over. And that with some smart spending, some you know, focus on training, you really can build this into an island that cannot be taken over no matter how large the force is. Is that your impression as well? Yeah, it has incredible natural defenses. And in fact, you know, as the Japanese occupied it in World War II, the United States made the, the I think, smart strategic decision that we weren't going to even try um, and instead went on up, obviously, to the southwest Japanese islands. Um, it, it just given its own position, um, the shallow waters that you would have to cross through in any approach from the west or the south would be very dangerous. And then on the other side, it's, it's basically the continental shelf and the you have kind of the terrain is very steep cliffs, you know, and so there aren't suitable beaches where the water's deep enough. So um, you have those challenges if you're coming by seaborne, obviously. I think the one thing that traditionally has not been available to folks is more of that airborne, right? For the United States, we've traditionally done some airborne amphibious from ships, but a very small scale. What you have now with China being not that far away is sort of a giant launch pad, conceivably, if you had the capacity to really augment any seaborne forces with airborne forces, um, and that could be air assault or airborne itself, you know, folks jumping out of planes. Uh, and I think we need to consider sort of that kind of tri-pronged or dual-pronged attack method that we've never seen before. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of questions uh, that you often hear here in the United States with the Taiwanese fight. I'm reminded of the same questions uh, that people asked about Ukrainians. Would they fight for this war? One of the things we did on our trip, which was really fascinating, is we, we met a friend of yours, Enoch Wu, who has this nonprofit that he started to train civilians, not necessarily in combat, but in, in response to, to a threat and, and being able to do basic medical care and the like. And it's surprising how much interest he's getting from the civilian population to join up and train for this. And that tells me that people are concerned about the threat and they're interested in doing something, not just putting their head in the sand. Is that your impression as well? Yeah, it definitely is. And that's been increasing in Taiwanese society. I lived there from 2014 to 17. I think I could say it changed a little bit then, but really what happened in Hong Kong in 2019 and then, of course, in 2020, that's what really woke up a lot of folks in Taiwan, that, that the threat is real and this could happen to them. Just, I mean, Hong Kong is a place that Taiwanese people went back and forth to regularly, routinely, and lived and worked, you know, and vice versa. Um, and all of a sudden that, that has changed overnight and really gave them an, the idea, I think through Taiwanese society that they do need to be prepared and be prepared for, you know, something that is not, uh, a black swan. And, you know, a lot of people make fun of their four month conscription training, which is very inadequate. It's getting extended to one year, but we're just talking about this earlier, the, the active forces are actually quite decent, right? Talk, talk to me a little about, about their capabilities. Yeah, I do think so. So I spent three years there as a military attache. As you mentioned, Dimitri, I got to engage and, and observe a lot of their forces across all their services. And I could tell you that they are tactically and technically proficient in their, weapons, in their weapon systems, respectively, and, you know, in sort of the basic building blocks of tactics that you'd want. So there's a lot to work with there in the Taiwanese military if the correct sort of operational concepts and defense strategies are applied. 
And it's not like they've never done this before. One of the things that's so fascinating when you look back at history is you look at the Singaporean military, which is you know arguably one of the best in the world, exceptionally well-trained across the naval, air force, even ground forces. Very, very small, obviously, but you know, pound for pound can stand up to some of the best out there. And they were trained, of course, when Singapore declared independence in the 1960s by the Taiwanese, the Israelis as well, but the Taiwanese, right? So you have this incredible force that was built in part by the Taiwanese, and then the Singaporeans are now you know, some of the best in the world, and the Taiwanese are lagging far behind. It's just such an interesting historical anecdote that one went in one direction, another in a different direction. One faces an existential threat, one arguably does not. But it also shows you that they are capable. They have been in the past. They've obviously fought China on a number of occasions when uh, the Chinese did try to stage various operations against Taiwan in the 1950s. And it's about really getting back to that spirit and capability that they've had in the past that has atrophied over time, right? Well, I think that's a huge part of it. And any other part of it is that Singapore, over those decades after, you know, you talk about 70s, 80s, 90s, but definitely after the 70s, had access to the United States, that Taiwan for a time really didn't, um, not in the way that Singapore obviously has. I mean, we have many personnel permanently stationed right there in Singapore, and Singapore has a large presence in the United States. In fact, they have fighter squadrons in the United States permanently. Because um, they can't really train Taiwan. in Singapore, right? It's so short, you take off and That's you're almost right. in another country's airspace yeah. right away. And with regards to Taiwan, we're starting to increase that, right? Starting to get people sent over here after 1979. Obviously, we withdrew our forces and, and stopped recognizing Taiwan. But do you think we should be ramping that up, the training both on the island and off the island? Yeah, there's been a a decent amount, I guess, more than most people realize the training. And obviously the U.S. government and, and Taiwanese government have chosen for political reasons, right, to, to keep everything very low key. And, um, you know, there are pluses and minuses to that. So there's a lot more going on than folks realize. Um, but it's still smaller units, low levels, you know, because you can't if you do something too big, then obviously it can't really by definition be low key. And so there is obviously room to grow there. And I think the urgency of the threat um, does really drive us to accelerate that expansion. And it has expanded a bit over the years. Um, but I think it does drive us to want to do even more. One thing I also want to talk about is the nature of the Taiwanese identity. Because I think that's one of the most striking things that people don't appreciate here is they think of Taiwanese as Chinese, you know, on the other side of the strait. And, you know, if there were no CCP, if there were no Hong Kong occupation or Xinjiang atrocities that are being committed there, that the Taiwanese would just naturally want to unify. And when you go there, one of the things that strikes you is how proud people are of being actually Taiwanese, Right. And that there are differences, cultural differences, obviously, before the Han Chinese even came over, the indigenous population was not Han Chinese, right? And there's a proud history there. But even uh, on the Han Chinese side, they speak Taiwanese, which is an offshoot of Mandarin, but not exactly the same language. And, you know, I came away with a realization that even if you had sort of the most liberal Jeffersonian democracy ruling the mainland, the Taiwanese would have no interest in joining in, that they have their own place, their own culture, their own history, and they want to keep it. Is, is that your impression as well? 
Maybe I don't think I would go that far. I think if China, like you said, was a total westernized open democracy, they might be willing, you know, in the sense that, you know, the European Union has a lot of ties and connections, right? Even though they're separate countries. So more association, but not right. necessarily being cons- subsumed by, right. yeah, by China. Yeah, I, I think so. But I think there's also, you know, the question of like, if China were that, then they wouldn't probably wouldn't be trying to force the issue either. Right. And, and, and so I think, I think it, that would be a mutually beneficial sort of uh, relationship between them, but you're right. Um, the, for, you know, that the Aboriginal or indigenous population of Taiwan is actually relatively small. I think it's less than 2%. So not significant, but, but, but a lot the, of people have bloodlines to, to those it's indigenous no, populations. It's quite mixed. You know, the Polynesian bloodlines do come in there. And then what happened in 1949 when the KMT came over, basically after that, you had about anywhere from 15 to 25%, depending on which numbers you looked at, had come over from the mainland. But since then, everyone's, you know, sort of intermixed. And, and the bulk, you know, that remaining bulk, like you said, were the Han Chinese that came over two, three hundred years beforehand, and they very much established a society there in Taiwan, and they feel very much, and the polling shows it, that they identify first and foremost, most people, as Taiwanese. And, and even culturally, they have, they've had obviously Japanese occupations since the late 1800s, and you could just see that in Taiwan, the influence of that, and, and you know, luckily for them, that occupation was much less horrific than it was for the mainland Chinese or other places around the region where Japanese com- committed all sorts of atrocities. That didn't really, that, that wasn't really the case in Taiwan, where they built up a governance structure and a modern society. And a lot of people view Japan quite warmly versus the mainland, where you know millions of people were were killed by the Japanese, right? Yeah, that's right. So the history with Japan, you know, I'm sure there were some harsh treatment, but overall, Japan built what is now modern Taiwan. They industrialized it. They built all the, you know, the roads, the airfields, all that stuff was was done by Japan. It was tremendous investment, you know, obviously education and kind of turned it from a rural to a much more industrialized economy. And then, frankly, after the KMT came over, they were viewed by the native Han population, right? They viewed the KMT as sort of just the next line of invaders and occupiers. And there was some harsh treatment at that time, too. So, so it's a brutal dictatorship that they had, right? Absolutely, yeah. It was a military, you know, military rule, martial law all the way till 1987 um, with, with some atrocities that were committed. And they're still sort of dealing with that now in Taiwan, that history. One thing that is interesting, though, is how both the PRC and Taiwan trace their lineage to the Chinese revolution. And in fact, the portraits of the leader of that revolution are everywhere in Taiwan. And he's recognized as the father of modern China on both sides uh, of the strait. Talk a little bit about that. that. That was really interesting. Yeah, so Sun Yat-sen, obviously, 1911, when he established the Republic of China in the mainland, that government is technically under Chiang Kai-shek, which got driven off the mainland in 1949. And so, again, it's the mainlanders that set up the current government. And, and like I said, a lot of folks there viewed that as an occupation for a long time. Now everyone's sort of amalgamated. But that's what that's the constitution that they live under in, in Taiwan. And we've seen a slow evolution to sort of 
pick that a little bit of that apart yeah. and, and more toward the Chiang Kai-shek part of the, the history there where he is not, you know, quite as revered again, because of these atrocities that were committed and other things um, as he once was before they became a democracy. And I, and I think, you know, at some point, eventually the Taiwanese start to look at their history and they're teaching it now in their history books that goes extends not just to 1911 on the mainland, but actually what was happening in Taiwan for many, many generations before that. We were there on their National Day ceremony that whole week and sort of their equivalent to July 4th. And it was interesting to me to observe it. We were in the presidential stands watching the parade and they had a few heads of state attending, the, 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 the few that recognized Taiwan, usually these small Pacific Islanders like Nauru, Tuvalu, and others. Nauru since then had a change of government and revoked recognition of Taiwan and switched it to the mainland. But it was amazing to me to see these people that in any other country would not be ferreted around as you know major heads of state, right, being very, very tiny countries, really being shown so much respect and deference to by the Taiwanese because these are the only countries now I think, what, about 11 or so that still recognize Taiwan. And this was very clearly a painful point for people, right? The fact that they are so isolated diplomatically that they see themselves as having a country. You know, the DPP's famous line is that we don't have to declare independence because we're already independent in every sense of the word. They are a country, but that lack of diplomatic recognition and isolation really grinds on people, right? And, you know, the, the, the move by Nauru to revoke recognition looks like Tuvalu may, may be looking to switch as well. The Chinese obviously have an active campaign to bribe these islanders to switch their recognition. That is a problem, right? We don't often pay attention to that, but if no country out there recognizes Taiwan, that further delegitimizes them and, you know, creates a a lot of psychological pressure on the population as well, right? It does. It's a big deal um, for Taiwan to maintain, you know, if not try to try to gain the, these relationships. And Nauru, that one example, has actually flipped back and forth a couple times in history. They, they, I think, recognized China for a few years in the early 2000s also. And so uh, for the Republic of China, which is what all these these dozen countries left, the small countries that recognize Taiwan, call it, they call it, they recognize it as the Republic of China, is then sort of an exclusive from being able to recognize the People's Republic of China. You can't possibly recognize them both because they both constitutionally claim the same territory. They both claim the, the mantle of being China. Um, and, and so this challenge comes, I think, I think it's a double-edged sword for China. They need to be quite careful if you get down to zero, if nobody recognizes the Republic of China, then what are you left with? In some ways, you know, for the pro-independence forces on Taiwan, then they'll be like, well, I guess we're just Taiwan. Um, and, and it may actually embolden them. So I, I think China is, you know, doing what they have to do to put pressure on the government. But there's probably some limits. On the flip side, obviously, Taiwan has really starting to increase its connections and connectivity and engagement with unofficial folks. Obviously, they've had it with the United States for a long time. We even have a legal mechanism to do that. But a lot of other countries are recognizing the importance of Taiwan. The real frustration, I think, comes with their lack of access to multilateral organizations, which sort of all fall under the rubric of the UN. Uh, and China's done a really, you know, permanent and complete job 
of boxing Taiwan out from those organizations. Yeah, and, and again, like the, the effect that this has on people, I think, is underappreciated here because th this is a moment of pride for them. This is about respect that they're getting from the rest of the world and, and not gaining it is something that is very painful for them. It was interesting when we were there how former government officials, you had our former UN ambassador that was part of the, the festivities attending and, and former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison and how they were ferried around as well as, as really senior figures, even though they have no role today in, in executive branches, either in this country or, or in Australia. So let me ask you about China. You know, my own feeling is, and, and this is partly why I wrote this book, World on the Brink, How America Can Beat China in the Race for the 21st Century, that is coming out in a few months and is available now in pre-orders. encourage everyone to try it. But one of the reasons I wrote it is because I see a lot of similarities between what Russia did in Ukraine and what Xi Jinping, I believe, wants to do in Taiwan, that you have both these authoritarian systems, in the case of Russia and China, led by now a single individual fully in control of the military, of the party, of the, the government. And both of them are looking at their egos. In the case of Putin, really wanting to establish his legacy, he sees himself as the new Peter the Great that's trying to bring back the old Russian empire. And Xi Jinping, in many ways, thinking the same, that, okay, we got Hong Kong, we've, we've dismantled the one country, two systems approach there, we have Macau, Taiwan is that last piece, major piece that is left standing. And he talks a lot about how we can't leave this problem to the new generations. And when you think about what that means, that you know he's running for party election again in 27. He's extended, of course, the term limits allowing him to do so. And you know very likely to obviously win that election. It's a five-year term. So he'll, if he wins, he'll rule till at least 2032. And then he's gonna approach 80, I believe 79, that time period. In the Chinese system, you don't necessarily have rulers that extend their rule into their 80s, so he may be willingly or unwillingly, he may be asked to, to step down at that point. So you really have that danger period where he may be thinking in his own mind that he's got till 2032 if he wants this to happen on his watch. And that's the moment for when he can try through peaceful means, if he can, which I don't believe he can, or through military peace otherwise, try to take Taiwan. Do you see it the same way that this danger is increasing and that window till 2032 is really vital? Yeah, no, I, I do. And obviously, you know, I've seen, seen pieces of the book and very excited to see it when it comes out. But I completely agree with your assessment, Dimitri. I think, I think Xi Jinping's fourth term is a very dangerous time period, you know, for cross-strait relations for us for a, a whole host of reasons. And I'll start sort of, I think it's important that, well, I'll offer my opinion that I, I very much disagree with a lot of folks, including, you know, friends, frankly, that we both know here in Washington that would sort of propose the proposition that, you know, a political accommodation called the one China policy or the 92 consensus or something like that is actually deterring China or has deterred China. Let's stop for a second and explain these terms to people. So one China policy is this Kissingerian phrasing that we used to accommodate China in the 1970s that basically says that we, we acknowledge that 
Chinese people on both sides of the strait believe that there is one China. It does not mean that we recognize it as one China. The Chinese don't talk about one China policy. They talk about one China principle, which to uh, to them means unequivocally we uh, control Taiwan, right? And the 1992 consensus is an agreement between the KMT and China that is a little bit controversial because the Chinese feel like the KMT acknowledged their uh, sovereignty over Taiwan and the KMT claims that they did no such thing. That's right. Yeah, that's essentially it. And I I think we look at all these political agreements and we try to tell ourselves too often that these are what holds China back. When in fact, I think the opposite is true. These are things that sort of keep us at bay from doing sometimes the things we need to do to increase deterrence. I think China knew when it made these agreements, well, obviously in 1970s, that it couldn't get Taiwan, had no ability to. And so we still had forces on Taiwan that exactly. didn't withdraw till 1979. And so it had nothing to lose. So of course it made this agreement, right? And and I think the only thing really truly stopping, you know, the Chinese Communist Party from making move on Taiwan, which it is committed to doing, is its own assessment of whether it can complete the mission. And where do you think they stand today in their ability? Obviously they've had a huge build up. A lot has been made of this 2027 deadline that Xi Jinping set for the PLA to get ready. I I think my personal view is that people make a little bit too much of that deadline because every military needs deadlines, and oftentimes they miss those deadlines, right? If you don't give them deadlines, it will never get done. So that doesn't necessarily, to me, mean that he's going to go in 27. In fact, I think 27 is actually unlikely that 28, perhaps late 28, might be more likely than 27. But you know, I actually believe him when he says that he doesn't yet have a time frame in his mind, right? A lot is going to depend on conditions on the ground in Taiwan, what the U.S. is doing, what Japan is doing, Australia, his own capabilities. And, you know, I don't think that, you know, 10 years ago, Putin decided that I'm going to invade on February 24th, 2022, right? These things happen quite naturally and, and, and develop, you know, when the capability is ready and when the desire is there. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think the political relationships definitely have a huge influence, but sort of that you know, the necessary but not sufficient condition is that, you know, he has the military capacity to do so. I agree with you. I don't think Xi Jinping believes his military can do it, you know, not with any degree of confidence. But And, and we should clarify that the, the can-do-it piece is highly dependent on what the U.S. does, right? If the U.S. does not come to Taiwan's aid, he can do it even today, right? But, but he can't count on that. And you've had President Biden on four occasions saying that he would come to Taiwanese defense. So if you assume that the U.S. is in, that's where he really does not have the capability today, right? That's right. Just like any smart, I think, military planner, they have to build that into their assumptions, just, you know, that the U.S. is going to come in because the likelihood is high enough. And so because in, in the cost of failure, betting on the other is, is so great. So yeah, this all bakes in U.S. uh, military intervention, for sure. But I think I I agree with you also that, you know, he is trying to get the PLA there. I mean, he actually set, I think you could argue he set timetables based on what he said when he came into power of like 2020 and 2021. And obviously now the goal, the deadline is 2027, like you said. Um, Incidentally, I don't think, I don't put much stock in sort of reports of, you know, uh, missiles filled with water instead of fuel. Um, the whole corruption narrative that PLA is so corrupt. I, I think the Russians respond to that is that, oh, that's cute. You think you've got corruption. Take a look at us. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I think th- that might be anecdotally true, but 
you know, even in the United States, we have corruption in our defense, you know, procurement system. So I no, you don't say. Yeah, can <laughs> can you imagine? Um, so yeah, I don't. I mean, let's be honest. Also, right, I'm a little more worried about the solid field weapons at this point than than the ones that they're pumping gas into. Um, so so I think the PLA has demonstrated. Very advanced capabilities. We see it all the time. I mean, they show it to us in some cases, or we found out about it in others. But you know, they're they're at, if not, you know, very close to our level when it comes to like hypersonics and some other types of things. They've obviously have an entire repertoire of surface to surface systems that we did not build because of INF treaty and other reasons. Um, and so an immediate-range ballistic missile treaty right. that the Trump administration withdrew from. That's right, yeah. And that was, you know, again, sort of dates back to Cold War decision-making that, that we just didn't catch up to in time, I think. Uh, we're obviously trying to make up for that now, but there are, there are some tremendous advantages that the PLA has, but, but I agree that they do need a few more years. And what are you looking for specifically? I mean, their naval forces are getting very advanced, at least in the region. You know, they don't necessarily have significant blue water naval projection, right? A lot of people make very simplistic comparisons of how much capability we have versus China. And that's not relevant because that's sort of a spreadsheet comparison. You know, my friend Michael Kaufman always says spreadsheets don't go to war, right? You know, if we were fighting a naval battle with China in the Atlantic Ocean, well, we would destroy them easily, but in Taiwan Strait, where they have all kinds of capabilities that we don't, that's a different story entirely, right? So what are you looking for as you sort of assess that they're getting closer and closer to the cap- that capability? That's right. They have a huge home field advantage. And so the things that they have, and, and frankly, they've had for decades, is this tremendous missile force, which is, is going to do a lot of damage, one, to Taiwan, but conceivably to, you know, U.S. and allied forces also strung out along the first island chain should they choose to do that. The other thing they have is this A2AD or anti-access air denial capability that's really designed to counter the U.S. way of war, meaning they can very accurately and efficiently, in other words, for a lot less money, take out something very expensive, they can go after our expensive platforms, our ships and aircraft specifically. Um, with anti-ship ballistic missiles hitting our carriers, for example. And then the thing that I think they're slightly deficient on that they're working on is the actual lift capacity to move a lot of boots across that strait. And that is going to be, like I said, like we talked about, a combination of on on the sea and in the air. And I think that initial kick down the door lodgement and be able to secure it, that's still a challenge for them from a lift capacity standpoint and probably, you know, a tactical sort of con-ops standpoint also. And then the fourth thing that we all know they're working on is they're not very comfortable with the nuclear balance, but they're looking to correct that over the next few years in a way that says, hey, they don't want us to have this sort of escalation advantage that they perceive right now. Yeah, that one, you may disagree with me, but that one I actually don't worry much about. We're going to have a podcast coming out soon with Dr. Jeffrey Lewis of the Middlebury Institute um, that works on a lot of these non-proliferation issues. And look, you know, they have 300 warheads today going to 1,000. I don't think changes anything for us. 300 warheads coming to the United States is way more than we can possibly intercept. That would change this country forever, change the world forever. So whether it's 1,000 or 2,000, I don't think matters a whole lot. So I actually wonder if it's helpful to us that they're spending enormous efforts and, and money building up that nuclear arsenal 
that's less money going to other things that are much more relevant to the conflict, right? Yeah, so I actually do agree with you, and that's why I said this is their perception that they want to have a much more nuclear parity in, the, in those forces before they feel confident that they're, you know, don't have that disadvantage when it comes to escalation. But I, I think, yeah, militarily, I would, I would lean more toward your view. So a lot of people talk about the difficulty of this invasion, which absolutely would be one of the most complicated operations uh, ever launched in, in the military history. And they often go to the scenario of a blockade that, you know, he doesn't have to invade. It's so hard and so risky. Why not just blockade the island and Taiwan is just going to surrender? And, and we talk a lot about, you and I, about the scenario. And I think both of us agree that this is not very realistic and could be actually strategically detrimental, right? And I think a lot of people don't appreciate how resilient Taiwan actually is, both in terms of its agricultural production, right? That, yes, they import a lot of food, but they don't need to. That they could grow much more to sustain themselves. Yes, the energy infrastructure is vulnerable, but look, you know, you've got energy being hit in Ukraine all the time, and they're surviving. And in Taiwan, the climate is much better. You're not going to freeze to death. It's a tropical climate. So uh, let's, let's discuss, you know, this scenario of a blockade and why doing a blockade you know, I think both of us agree would be a defeat for China. Yeah. So first off, I think the invasion scenario, right, the goal is to do what Putin failed to do when he didn't make it to Kiev. The goal is to get it over with as soon as possible and sort of present the world with a fait accompli because, you know, that's that's why A2AD is so important, just to keep everyone away. And then it's done and at that point, the world, the U.S.-led world, might look at it and be like, well, it's over. Like, so now let's, you know, let's do some sanctions, let's punish them, but ultimately... We're, we're not go fighting back to retake right. the island. Exactly. I think that's a, a, a low, very low likelihood that we would then initiate, you know, hostilities in order to try to take it back in their sort of home field, as we said before. Now, the blockade scenario is the opposite. It's an extended period of time where sort of coalitions can build in the United Nations here and there, the political will, you know, and if you can assume, and I think it's important that Taiwan still has connectivity through what have you, low earth orbit satellites, or what have you, then, then even shortwave radio, right, that's going to be hard yeah. to jam. They could build, you know, sympathy. And I think that's really important and they will suffer. Don't, don't get me wrong. A blockade will cause them to suffer. But again, they will, the blockade not only causes Taiwan to suffer, because of the semiconductor issue, as well as maybe some other trade issues, it really causes the world to suffer. Including China. Relatively quickly, yeah. And in China, probably more than, than the rest of us. But we'll be hit relatively quickly, I think, and we'll be quite unhappy, as will Europe, as will Japan. And so you sort of you internationalize this thing before it's done. And I don't think that's what China really wants. Well, and you could also get Taiwan to immediately declare independence upon a blockade, right? And if you fail in your mission, then you've really uh, set, a, set a situation where the country is now independent and you fail to take it, right? And also, there's no precedent in modern history of a country, even a city, fallen due to a blockade. I mean, you can go back to the famous siege of Leningrad for hundreds of days that the Nazis orchestrated during World War II. It did not surrender, right? So the idea that this huge country that can sustain itself with food production would surrender, I just don't find credible. But what do you think about the idea that some propose of sort of the middle ground where 
it's not the traditional blockade where all shipping going in is being blockaded, but there is sort of a redirection, right, where the Chinese basically establish a quarantine, to borrow a term from Kennedy, which also is beneficial because a blockade is a declaration of war under national law. A quarantine that we used uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis may not be. And basically say, we're going to inspect every ship going in or going out. We're going to allow semiconductors to leave. A lot of them leave on planes anyway, right? We're going to allow that to happen. But everything else coming in, we're going to block. Like that middle ground where you're going to try to make sure that the global economy is not fully disrupted, but the Taiwanese economy and Taiwanese way of life is. This particular case, actually, I think Taiwan has some leverage because um, they control, like you said, that semiconductor industry. And China will be severely affected. And so, you know, in return, in this particular example, you, you could see Taiwan saying, okay, you're saying you're letting semiconductors through, but I'm not going to ship them to you. I'll ship them to other folks, but I'm not going to ship them to you. Um, and so, I, you know, it, while it sounds nice, I think on paper, Taiwan has some agency here and some decisions that they can make too. Um, and like you said, most of these are, if not all, are traveling by air, regardless anyway. Under the, the earlier example of the full blockade, remember Taiwan can be, or China could be put really on the horns of a dilemma if they were to declare something with, you know, civilian cargo aircraft flying in. They would have to, what are they going to do? Are they going to shoot it down? Like, is that really the decision they're going to make? They have to be committed to that if they're going to declare this blockade. And there could be counter-blockade options, right? And, and also, let's not forget that the Taiwan Strait is a huge shipping lane for containers going in and out of China, right? So any disruptions to that that the Taiwanese could orchestrate with their own anti-ship capabilities and sure. uh, maritime drones that they're trying to develop and other things can have a huge effect. You know, I look at the one strategic advantage that the Ukraine got last year, which was not in the, on land in the counteroffensive, but it was in the Black Sea, by being able to threaten Russian shipping coming out of the port of Novorossiysk um, in the Eastern Black Sea, they were able to get basically a tacit deal where the Russians agreed not to target their own shipping coming out of Odessa. So you could see that situation developing as well, where China will be really left in a terrible position. Yeah, and if, if Taiwan does choose in some way to actually challenge the blockade and not just let it be a legal thing hanging out there, the, the amount of naval resources that China would have to commit over time, it's very significant. I mean, even especially if you talk about these quarantine ops where I'm now boarding and inspecting every ship going in and out. I mean, that's that's a, a huge, uh, tremendous resource drain that's going to happen over China. And, it, you know, questions about how long they'd be able to sustain those operations too. And don't forget that what we're seeing right now in the Red Sea with the Houthis being able to shut down a major seafaring lane the Taiwanese have way more capabilities than the Houthis, right? So if the Taiwanese decide to counter-blockade Chinese ports and close the Taiwan Strait, they would have the capability to do so, right? So it could be extremely disruptive to exactly the blockading force, right? The naval force that the PLA or the Chinese Coast Guard would have to deploy. I think you could really um, put a huge disruption, if not pain, on China. All right, so we talked about the blockade scenario and why that likely will not work in Chinese favor. What about everything else, sort of short of war, these gray zone tactics, influence campaigns, bribery? You know, there are some Hollywood scenarios that some people are proposing of like decapitation strikes against the leadership. 
like to me all those things seem like they're written in Hollywood, not in reality. And that's not going to get this country of 23 million people to surrender. Is that your view as well? So my view is that a lot of this has, has had some effect, right? You have this strain of, for, for example, American skepticism across Taiwanese society that's inflated by some of this media, um, the pro-China, more of the pro-China leading media, and I'm sure sponsored we have that threat here in the United States. They obviously had it in Ukraine. And the skepticism, we should clarify, is that the U.S. just wants to sell us their stuff. It will not come to our aid. We're on our own, right? We can't trust the United States. That's sort of the, the narrative right. that the Chinese are pushing. On, we can't count on them. And so, you know, if we put our eggs in the U.S. basket, in the end, they'll sell us out. So we may as well sort of make the best of what we can with China. That's That, that would be the argument that the Chinese influencers are pushing. And so, but I think if you look at the overall trends, um, it's just not working. I mean, this is the third presidential election in a row where the voters have said, nope, that's, that, that's not what I'm buying. I'm, I'd rather listen to what DPP is selling. Uh, but, but hold on, let me play devil's advocate here because DPP got only 40% of the vote, right? 60% went to the KMT and the other party, the TPP, which you know, in foreign policy somewhat aligns with the KMT. And... Also, like domestic issues played a huge role that we make everything about the cross-strait relations, but that's not the case, right? The economic situation, energy security, those were big, big issues in the campaign, arguably just as big as the China issue. Yeah, so it's not, I agree, it's not just that that the, the polls every four years, there are actual polls being done all the time about how Taiwanese feel about China. And I think the big factors are things like Hong Kong that we talked about. Um, Ukraine itself and how China positioned itself. China's response to Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit, um, it scared some people into sort of this American skepticism view. But I think overall, if you look at the polling trends, it actually caused more people to dislike China. And so the overall sort of slow influence campaign or the peaceful reunification, that in quotes, obviously, um, campaign, to me, does not seem to be paying off. And you can see that with every generation of Taiwanese. Let's talk a little bit about semiconductors. You actually, in your role at Beacon, spent a lot of time on this issue with uh, a lot of industry. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions in this country about how far we can go to get ourselves independent of Taiwan, right? You even had this in the Republican presidential primary, this conversation of, well, as soon as the CHIPS Act really gets going, we won't rely on Taiwan anymore, and Taiwan will stop marrying to the United States. That is just a fantasy, right? And one, there's massive amounts of CHIPS production capacity in Taiwan that you're not going to replicate anywhere else. But two, the cost difference is just so astounding. Like, visiting Taiwan, you really get shocked by how cheap everything is, right? The cost of living outside of real estate is so cheap. And that is a massive advantage for TSMC and other fabs in, in China because they're paying these people $25,000 a year. How are you going to find a location in the United States where you're going to hire highly educated people to work in this industry for $25,000 a year? Not to mention the uh, construction costs and, and everything else that goes into the fab operation. And I think you're seeing now TSMC struggle in Arizona, right, with both union issues, labor costs, even just bringing in trades. Like, you know, assigning one fab manufacturer who said, we can't find high-end welders 
to build our fabs. We have to import them from Taiwan. I mean, we just lost a lot of that, you know, trade capacity here in the United States. So what are you seeing in this industry? And, and is it realistic that Taiwan will not matter to the chips industry for the foreseeable future? No, I, I agree. It's a complete misperception. It's not just the Republicans. You know, the Biden administration is also at the senior levels made these statements, right? That we're, we're doing this because then we don't have to worry as much about this Taiwan contingency. And I think the opposite happens when we build a fab in Arizona. You actually create even more interdependency between the United States and Taiwan because that entire supply chain, you know, comes from Sinju, you know, in Taiwan. And then a lot of Taiwan supply chain, then if you go further steps back, comes from Japan, the United States, or other places like that. So, but but building that fab up in, you know, those fabs in Arizona is a relatively small percentage of global demand and even our own demand. And so Taiwan will always have the leading edge, you know, from a TSMC perspective. And will always, you know, for the foreseeable future, have the bulk, you know, the majority of the production. It's going to remain there, even if we build up U.S., Japan, and Germany, the fabs that have been planned. It'll take a long time for sure. But I hate this reductionist argument that Taiwan only matters to us in the world economy because of chips. I mean, I think that's really insulting to the Taiwanese themselves. And I think even more importantly, it's really underappreciating the strategic geostrategic position of Taiwan. And what's striking to me, spending time with the Japanese and the folks in the Philippines and Australians, is that they view Taiwan as really critical to their security. And one of the things that I think most people don't appreciate is in a scenario where China owns Taiwan somehow, whether it's invades and U.S. fights and loses or it doesn't fight, that would change the region, right? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I I think Taiwan, if you look at it right on a map, it's sort of this linchpin of the first island chain. And if you read what a lot of PLA writers, you know, talk about the first island chain and and then look at it on a map from China's perspective, it's sort of this limiting line for them, right, that blocks them in in some ways from the rest of the Pacific. In the book, I call it the cork that bottles up China, right? And one of the things we do in the book is we rotate the map, right? Everyone looks at the map of this huge China and Taiwan, a little speck of land next to it. But if you put China on top and you look at Taiwan straight fa- facing straight down, you're, you're seeing how Taiwan is essentially critical to containment of China. And they know it. That's right, because either side of that is U.S. allies. The Philippines on one side, Japan on the other side. South Korea. Yeah, and then you go further up, you go up South Korea, you wrap around the South China Sea to Vietnam or something, or U.S. partners. Um, and so they feel quite vulnerable, and Taiwan would, would basically unlock all that, open all that. And I think, you know, frankly, within, within a few years, if, we, if Taiwan were to fall, I think the U.S. credibility would fall very quickly politically, but I think even U.S. access and influence would shift very quickly out of the Western Pacific. The very last question, I can't not ask it because uh, you are a retired Marine, once a Marine, always a Marine, and your service uh, has been one of the most forward-leaning on the thinking around China and the Indo-Pacific, and General Berger, who the recently retired Marine Commandant, has done a lot and has gotten a lot of enemies, uh, including his own service, his predecessors that are criticizing him for abandoning tanks, for example. 
putting in structure these new marine littoral regiments that are so focused on the Indo-Pacific to the exclusion of other regions. What are your thoughts on what is happening with the Marine Force now, and do you support those initiatives? Um, I, I think General Berger was and you know is a visionary leader. Um, I think he he did the things that needed to be done that were very hard choices to make. Uh, I think most of the active duty Marine Corps absolutely believes that also and wants to follow him. I think the opposition comes, you know, primarily from not just retired, but like long time retired Marines. And look, they have absolutely have a right to have opinions. Um, and a lot of them spent their career fighting in the Middle East, right? And they're worried that we in the Marine Corps would no longer have that capability. Actually, yes, but I think even a, a lot, a lot of them spent their time fighting in Vietnam, a lot that are speaking up, you know, with some of the loudest voices. And so even even another degree further removed from, I think, the current threats and war fighting. I mean, it's not just the Indo-Pacific theater. I think the capabilities General Berger pushed and are being developed in the Marine Corps as we speak and experimented on would be equally applicable in Ukraine, frankly. Um, we've seen it, you know, um, with the things that are happening around, you know, um, on the coast, but also even on land. So uh, that's my view. And uh, I, I, I do have tremendous respect for General Berger and everything that he's done for us. All right. Well, Ivan, we'll end it there. A terrific conversation. There's no better expert on Taiwan in the U.S. national security establishment than you. And really appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Great to be here with you, Dimitri.